Polderen. 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 Poldermodel gaat de wereld niet redden. Hello everybody and welcome back to Blockchain Won't Save the World on tour. And if you couldn't tell from the intro, today's show is all about the Netherlands, home of the Polder Model, a form of consensus-based decision-making that dates back to the Middle Ages and has shaped Dutch culture and politics for centuries. We're going to take you way back in history to help explain the unique conditions that led the Netherlands to become global leaders in blockchain, crypto payments and government-led consortia and to reinforce how important culture is to the success of blockchain initiatives. You're about to meet some seriously colorful and passionate characters. There's something for everyone here, from BitTonic to bike chain, food to freight, merchants to ministries, rigs to regulation. You get the point. Whatever you're into, this is 100% one for the culture. We start with a brief history of the blockchain era in the Netherlands. Your guides are Anna Riches, blockchain practice leader for IBM, Jakob Boersma, co-founder at WB Node, and Olivier Ricken, the CEO of Ledger Leopard. Like in many countries, I think, blockchain in the Netherlands really started with people who were interested in Bitcoin, uh, small meetups, just geeks interested in the technology. That grew and grew, and at a certain point, also the, the bigger companies entered. There used to be a thing called the Bitcoin conference. And I was there the last time it was still called the Bitcoin conference, uh, but it was actually the time where the big companies would be there, lots of suits. <laughs> it was a, a very different view from the, the sweaters at the meetups that we saw before. And actually you might know um, <laughs> the solution that we brought there because it was bike blockchain. Uh, we did it together with uh, the Dutch Vehicle Authority, and it was a proof of concept where you could register your bike on the blockchain, and you could find it if you lost it uh, by using GPS coordinates, uh, and you could report it stolen. I think if there's anything very Dutch, <laughs> then it's bicycles and bicycles getting stolen. So I think this was a really nice early example of, yeah, of our experimentations uh, with blockchain. So five years ago is kind of a watershed moment, I would say, because everything before that time was really kind of the Bitcoin era. And then in 2016, um, suddenly the whole blockchain hype hit the world and, of course, the Netherlands as well. And suddenly I was asked, Jacob, can you head up the blockchain team for Deloitte in the Netherlands and uh, find people who actually know about this stuff? Because we have suddenly a lot of clients. We're starting to ask about it. And the biggest one at that time was actually Philips, who were looking at, at setting up a blockchain team and wanted to do all kinds of proof of concepts around medical data. That was just the first one of many, of, a, of like a major wave of big companies and banks that were suddenly super interested in Ethereum and in, in all kinds of blockchain applications. Not long after that, the Dutch Blockchain Coalition was also founded which is one of actual several blockchain associations in the Netherlands. I think if you look in a bit more recent past, I think we've all experienced a bit of a um, slump into the um, trial of disillusionment with uh, things not actually going as fast as everybody dreamed they would be going five years ago. But there's quite interesting startups, I think, quite interesting concepts that spun out of those early days. 
one of the most interesting turning points in what happened was the first meeting we had with a group of people that were picked by one of the ministries actually in the Netherlands or uh, under auspicious of one of the ministries uh, where they said we're going to put 50 people into a room and they're all involved in blockchain. We don't know what's going to come out of it, but it's going to be something cool. And we met in, I think it was early 2016 in The Hague. And that is still the people who are, well, at least from my point of view, are seen as all the pioneers of blockchain in the Netherlands in one room with people like Rutger van Zuidam, who started the Odyssey Trails, and all the other people who were founders of all the various blockchain companies in, in the Netherlands. That was really a turning point where a lot of people who might knew each other once in a while from meetups, etc., but really all came into one room together. And by having that interaction, personal connections were made, and that really led to a speed up of development because we knew each other and we knew how to contact each other immediately and that made things easier i must say and actually out of that meeting eventually the dutch blockchain coalition was evolved and actually in those pre-meetings where uh, they were called the dutch digital delta blockchain expert group meetings so i think dutch blockchain coalition is a much better term <laughs> a lot of people from various backgrounds actually started to join it wasn't just the technical people but it was also the legal people people from risk and compliance and finance etc people from all different backgrounds who saw that there was new stuff coming up that uh, this new technology could change a lot of things it created a willingness to without any personal gain start working together to really figure out what things were and one of the most tangible examples of that involvement at that point in time is that people really started talking about smart contracts a lot of people said we need to to know more about it and that's when we started for example the smart contract work group really starting to deep dive and understand what smart contracts were not only from a technical point of view but also from a legal point of view in order to let the for example the legal community know that they shouldn't be afraid that smart contracts will change all the contracts that they knew so far and that all the lawyers had to become programmers, but really get a grasp out of it. And in a bigger picture, what you really saw at that point in time is at several of the major law firms out of this first corporation, all of a sudden there was an, an additional boost in interest in technology in a broader sense. Blockchain gaat de wereld niet redden. So let's learn more about the blockchain community, and particularly why that sense of community and collaboration is so strong. Starting with the first of many contributions from Marlous Pomp from the Dutch Blockchain Coalition. We have some great blockchain companies in the Netherlands, like Bitonic and MDEX. And we have also a lot of startups who can build almost any blockchain solution, like Kria, Sverion, uh, Let's Leopard. And those are really innovative blockchain companies. It's also good that we not only build specific use cases, but that we also have enough talent in the Netherlands and excellent startups. So that's also something I'm proud of. I think the blockchain communities, they attract relatively nice, enthusiastic and inspired people. And that's also what I see in the Netherlands, which really try to yeah, make the world a bit better. 
And for example, we also have companies like WordProof that focus on the trusted web. So they're really yeah, driven to improve the trust of the internet. And in the Netherlands, the focus is less on earning a lot of money with this, but more on a vision for a better world. The Netherlands is nothing if not both very tolerant to all kinds of ideas. So also all kinds of ideas around blockchain. But then also there's a rich tradition of people splitting off and creating their own little communities and then sometimes maybe rejoining communities, but also uh, going their own paths. So there's a lot of really interesting meetups that still happen quite regularly, like monthly in in all kinds of major cities. Uh, And at those meetups, you will find everybody from people who have just set up their own cryptocurrency and want to tell you all about it to people uh, representing like major law firms, for example, or, or big companies or banks and everything in between from pure hobbyists to quite uh, dedicated professionals. Also uh, initiatives like two tokens who are very much focused on the token economy and how can you actually use things like stable coins and, and those kind of things in, uh, in in financial applications. I think the whole dichotomy of is it cryptocurrency on the one side or blockchain on the other side and oh we, we like blockchain but we, we dislike cryptocurrency and we can, can completely separate the two. I think that's disappearing a bit and, and the realization is that hey uh, we actually get more rich thoughts and more uh, useful applications if we see uh, where we can mix and match from both worlds. Blockchain gaat de wereld niet redden. Now we're going to take you back. Way back. I promise you this episode was going to be different and we've brought some true scholars of the game to give you the lowdown on why the Netherlands was destined to be a blockchain superpower. Starting with Simon Lelyfeld, a regulatory expert and occasional tour guide on Dutch banking and payments history, Marika de Rauter de Wilt, founder of The New Fork, and a special appearance from Robert Verwijen, founder of Keen Ventures and a future inductee into El Club de las Tres Comas, who highlights a number of important landmarks in the success of technology-led businesses in the Netherlands. To start with the past few years, I hope you don't mind me stretching that uh, over the past 500 years, (laughs) because I think some of the elements to understand the Netherlands properly, I think it's very good to understand where we come from as a country. Basically, we are the lowlands, the Netherlands. We are very close to the water and the water runs in and out of the Netherlands all the time. So our history is basically a history of flooding, flooding, flooding. And the Dutch trying to protect themselves by acting collectively and quickly to protect from the water. Our first states form in the Netherlands are the water counties, the jurisdictions that deal with what do we do to protect the water. So we have a very clear collective mindset, a need to work collectively together to protect ourselves from the water. And this is bottom up. So we have a very tough time in the Netherlands in dealing with strict hierarchies. And of course, as a small country, which was flooded with water, we needed to trade very quickly, very early on in our history, because basically the lands where we wanted to grow our grain, yeah, well, they they were flooded as well. So we needed to start trading very rapidly with Germany and Poland and all the other countries to feed ourselves. So we became a trading nation, a shipping nation, and we've done some nice tricks. We have gained quite some interesting experiences in the financial field as well. If you pinpoint Amsterdam around 1600, there's about thousand currencies in circulation and there's a separate business of money changers of cashiers so technically if you look at banking and payments you can say that payments is basically transporting money from a to b and banking is safeguarding money in a safe spot 
by origin, the Netherlands had a very big payments or cashier's business, where the main business model was keeping the money of the merchant safe and making sure that if he needs to pay somewhere in Europe or wherever in the world, the payment is being made. So we have a Bank of Amsterdam being set up around 1600 to ensure that we have a proper functioning payments business in the Netherlands, that we clean up our currency circulation. So you see governments taking a front seat to drive towards a infrastructure which allows the merchants to do what they do best, which is trade, and allows the government to influence and to ensure that the payment facilities are there. And then over time, around 1900s, this, this all shifted more towards banks. But still, even from 1900 until 2000, you could see that in the Netherlands, the postal gyro system, a government set up system in the beginning of, of uh, 1900s, uh, 1918 to be exact, were driving payments innovation and creating proper infrastructure for the whole of Netherlands to do payments properly. Over the last hundred years, sort of the bankers and the postal gyro were always sort of battling each other like in the market. But although there were those battles, there was always the understanding we need some middle ground. We need interoperability to exist. And I think that feature, that understanding that you can compete on some elements, but you can also cooperate on other elements. That's a very important feature combined with the fact that the Netherlands is a small country, which really are, are very close and akin to what's happening in, in blockchain. Uh, because in its essence, it is about cooperation and structuring transactions in a cooperative way rather than in a closed loop form. So I think that sets the scene for the Netherlands as a country with a culture, but also with a technical innovation history that's really geared towards cooperation and innovation at the same time. So in Dutch, we have a governance model that's called the Polder model, which is very decentralized. And they said, well, actually, blockchain is um, it's the digital version of your, your polar model. And today, I think that still holds true. Decentralization is very much in our own DNA. This is really because of the geographical reality of our country, where we have lots of water, and we really need to manage things at very decentralized levels, as you have in Bangladesh or other countries. So it fits very well with our mindset. Let's go back in history for a little bit. So the Netherlands has always been a country conducive to business and open to new technology. So just for example, to give you a little nugget of, uh, of uh, stuff you didn't know, the first limited liability company was actually invented uh, right here in Amsterdam called the East India Trading Company. And so that was the first form of organization where they said, let's partition uh, the ownership of this uh, endeavor into shares, which uh, ultimately led to the first stock exchange being uh, invented right here in, uh, in the city of Amsterdam. And the other thing that people don't know is that actually the Netherlands has in its history already kind of punched above its weight for a long time in all kinds of technology. So... More recently, for example, and, and your blockchain audience will appreciate this, for example, a guy called Guido van Rossum has kind of invented the programming language of Python, both in terms of doing business, being open for business and being open to new tech and creating new tech. You know, the Dutch have been at it for a while. And going forward, I mean, we have a healthy ecosystem for startups. I think lots of stuff can be improved. But when I look at a tech ecosystem and to judge whether or not it's healthy, I want to see something like a flywheel effect, which uh, simplistically put is an entrepreneur raises some capital, brings his idea or her idea to the market. 
makes it big, then maybe one day exits and uh, creates a bit of wealth for his or herself, and then invests back into that same ecosystem, either by becoming an angel investor or by starting a second or a third company. So becoming a, a repeat entrepreneur, if you will. And if that flywheel spins fast enough, an ecosystem is creating healthy outputs. So if we look back at the last 10 years, this country has produced uh, a fair bit of winners. So most recently, that will be companies like TomTom, the navigation company, Booking.com, which we all use to book our hotels. It's companies like Agen, that was a payment service provider. It's companies like Takeaway.com, where a small country like the Netherlands has produced you know, billion-dollar outcomes. Blockchain gaat de wereld niet redden. Time to bring it back to the present day and an overview of some of the most interesting and most Dutch use cases for blockchain in the Netherlands. You're going to hear examples from Jacob, Arne, Bob Ravestein from ABN AMRO and Aliosia Baye, director of BlockLab. A lot of the most well-known use cases for blockchain are, I think, still around things like cryptocurrency. I think the Bitcoin community in the Netherlands is quite strong still, but uh, even years ago, they already uh, had like complete city uh, streets in some Dutch cities where all the retailers had a, had a Bitcoin point of sale terminal, for example. There's a Dutch startup called Guts who do ticketing on the blockchain. So they provide you with, for example, concert tickets that you can uh, very safely transfer to somebody else. And they are actually now also obviously looking into things like NFTs. A well-known one, I think, is that uh, Albert Heijn, the major uh, Dutch supermarket chain, experimented with blockchain to be able to track orange juice. So you could uh, scan your orange juice and see uh, where it was originally sourced from. There's a really large number of blockchain experiments that were done But I think the most interesting thing is that probably if you ask just the, the regular man on the street, they won't even be able to tell you a lot about the blockchain cases that are maybe having the most influence because they're so behind the scenes. So I know there's a lot of financial companies, for example, and banks who are looking into uh, using blockchain and, and especially also for applications like self-sovereign identity. Just as a very recent and also kind of hot topic example, the field lab experiments with events in the time of Corona, they used a um, self-sovereign identity wallet for all the participants to be able to prove that they were recently tested negatively for COVID. There's also a lot of examples in the agri-food industry where a startup like uh, Agos is now um, putting the, the whole pork supply chain in a blockchain-based TIG passport. The relevance of blockchain is probably lost on a lot of the stakeholders in that. But the fact that you can now much more easily pay as a farmer immediately when the uh, order is placed by the supermarket, that's very beneficial to all the involved uh, players. Uh, one of the, the, the really funny ones is, I think I participated in the very first brainstorm for this around uh, the registration of bikes, e-bikes to be specific. And uh, obviously that got named Bike Chain. It also still has quite a uh, strong real world application because if it works for bikes, it actually, you can also make it work for cars, for example, and the whole registry of car ownership especially with the rise of uh, ride sharing and, uh, and those kind of things is, and, and mobility as a service. 
as well as use cases in real estate, actually. And that one is one of the examples, I think, that I'd like to call bureaucracy as a service. Because the, one of the things that, that the Netherlands is quite good at is creating very strong uh, centralized registries, for example, uh, for land or for companies in the form of the, the Chambers of Commerce registry or for citizen registers with citizen uh, identities. All of those central registries actually are looking to blockchain as a way to make their services much more decentralized and much more robust. And especially in the real estate world, there is a lot of mistrust between uh, all kinds of stakeholders and a lot of intransparency. And one of the Dutch startups that's using blockchain technology to combat that is, is called Axiom. They've really built digital building passports to really make the selling and, and kind of the whole history of a, of a building from like just a patch of land all the way to a final building that at some point even needs to, of course, get demolished. And then the, the materials need to be uh, reused in a circular way. All of that needs some kind of digital uh, twin for which you can use the blockchain. One example that I like a lot, because it's about the energy transition, is the one that's run by Tenet, the high-voltage grid operator in the Netherlands. You know, when you're, you're charging an electric vehicle, you're using electricity. And Tenet is responsible for making sure that the supply and the demand are always equal. So what you can do then, if there's suddenly more demand than you expected, uh, you could fire a power plant to create that demand. And they have this kind of auction system um, to buy energy at the last moment when they need it. A better way, and what you're seeing more and more, is to decentralize that. What Tenet now can do, or actually via other companies, is when you are charging your vehicle, they could remotely stop it from charging to actually lower the demand on the energy grid. Of course, with your permission, and you even get a little bit of a reward for it. But by doing that, the energy grid is much more resilient to sudden peaks without needing coal or gas or other ways to, um, to create that energy. I think that's a really good example of how blockchain can really blend in the infrastructure, but at the same time provide really innovative features that can be very important for things like uh, transitioning to green energy. About three or four years ago, someone came to our office with a great idea. He worked in the finished vehicle logistics industry, so moving cars from the manufacturer to the dealers, and they have a problem there. There is no transparency in the supply chain because there are so many different parties involved, sometimes even with an incentive not to uh, share too much about what they're doing, which means that if you buy a finished car, at the dealer, they won't be able to tell you when it arrives. They'll say, yeah, it's going to be there in two months. And, and of course, there's other problems related to this intransparency as well, like fraud by cross-border tax carousels and things like that. So he had an idea. He uh, had heard about blockchain and he thought that blockchain might actually help to solve that transparency issue. And we've worked with them all this time since then. And now they have a network that not only uh, spends the Netherlands, but also I think half of Europe is now covered by a blockchain network run by logistics providers mainly, where they can provide updates about where the car currently is. And that gives us traceability. It can help if there's damage across the supply chain. And in general, it's just getting rid of a lot of costs in the supply chain. 
And what I really like about this is how something like just an idea that someone came up with when he drove home can actually turn out to be this giant collaboration of, of different parties all across Europe and really making a difference. First of all, of course, the bank wants to understand, can this be a threat for us in the future or not? Because if you think about the technology in itself, it's a trust engine and it should actually get rid of third parties. And you can see the bank as a trust provider and a preferred party. And then you find out, well, the, the technology itself can be very useful because of the, the audit trail, the time stamping on the perspective, the possibility of authentication of information you share with each other. So we started to look in real estate, corporates, rentees, because there's so much information being exchanged with these parties and all the time has to be updated and you need safe and secure access to it. So you can create a small ecosystem quite quickly. And at the same time, we started to think about trade finance. Of course, there, a lot of paperwork is involved also. Can you automate it, digitize it, and also then make benefit of the fact that you can securely exchange information with each other. And as you have the timestamping possibility, that you can also very clearly see if there is fraud involved, yes or no. So at later stage, we actually started to work together with larger corporates. What are the different issues most of the people in a supply chain have? And by looking at the different stages, you can actually distinguish three of them. First, I would like to have transparency. Where are my goods? What is their condition? Then the second one is that I would like to have more digitization. So now we have all this paperwork. Can we exchange it in a more digital way? And if we have that in a more digital way, can we then automate a lot of our processes and then start thinking about all the added value which all this infrastructure provides you with? And then you start thinking about different financing products or insurance, how you can trigger those automatically. For me, the biggest enjoyment and achievement was basically that collaboration together with Samsung SDS and the Port of Rotterdam, together with a bank. And we got actually support from that from the bank. We can provide communication between all the different players, actors within the supply chain. And that we actually created value towards our clients because just by looking and creating visibility in the supply chain with the help of this blockchain technology, they could only reduce their costs of shipping their containers. And also the people inside the bank to understand that this technology really had added value. It's not normally a, a bank can see itself as a separate entity, but they're just part of a whole journey of a client and even the whole supply chain. And then next to it, I was involved with two commodity trade platforms. One of them is Pact, which is in the post trade of oil. And the other one is uh, Comco, which is financing of community trade. And I think them are more focusing on trade finance in general. These are actually two initiatives which are quite successful in the market. What is not perhaps that well known is that companies like uh, Rabobank, uh, ING, they, they have been at the front of, of blockchain implementation. We trade and Marco Polo, for example, are blockchain applications where Dutch banks have been involved in and, and, and really been at the forefront of blockchain development. I also see some very interesting uh, startups here in the Netherlands. One I really like is uh, Hyphen, which has nothing to do with logistics or energy, but is, is really all about how can you share information between different pension funds in a privacy-preserving way and in a way that is secure. What I also like is, is the fact that Port Excel, which is a founded by the Port of Rotterdam and is an accelerator and incubator for, for technology information in ports, actually has had some, some blockchain companies from outside of the Netherlands 
into the port of Rotterdam and for example, T-Mining, which is from Belgium, they have implemented their solution for secure container release in, in, in the port of Rotterdam. So I think there's plenty of good vibrations going on. Blockchain gaat de wereld niet redden. Next, we're going to give you two contrasting blockchain organizations who are leading lights in the Netherlands. Shell is a global energy and petrochemicals company that has set up its dedicated blockchain center of excellence in Amsterdam under Sabine Brink. And the New Fork, founded by Marika, a startup focused on digitization, provenance and education for the huge agri-food sector in the Netherlands and worldwide. We started out with blockchain already in 2016, so I think we were quite early on in this whole time frame of exploring blockchain in the energy industry. We started out just with a couple of use cases and POCs back in the day. We've really also in those early years have been able to define a clear strategy on how blockchain can impact Shell across all its different business lines. I think about more in the electricity space, in the mobility space, uh, upstream or downstream area. And through that evolution, our team has also grown over time. First of all, we started as really, really like a startup, actually, within uh, this large corporate, really trying to make a name for ourselves and trying to make an impact. And now I must say, you know, for me, I'm very proud of having this really good established team. It's a great diverse team with skills and capabilities and backgrounds. I think we have you know, seven different cultures within the team. We have a 60-40 split of female males in the team. You know, it really delivers a great dynamic. Everyone is based out of Amsterdam, and this is not really on purpose, more about by chance, to be honest. We operate as a global team, this blockchain center of excellence. We really help every single business across Shell. So you can think about our teams helping people in Vancouver or in Qatar or in South America, etc. You know, it really spreads over the world. And for what our mandate is of our team is really to help all of these businesses create either solutions that bring efficiencies to their processes. You know, we create new consortiums for that. We create new ecosystems that help deliver these solutions. Um, but we are also really strongly focusing on creating new business models, especially in the area of the energy transition. I think, you know, the majority of our portfolio of projects are all focused on creating future energy solutions that help us accelerate the energy transition. And this is really how we, we operate as a team, helping these businesses from use cases to actual deployments in their industry and in the energy sector. Of course, it's not only blockchain that within Shell uh, is being worked on. We sit actually within a larger digitalization organization. And this organization has four hubs across the world, based in Houston, London, Amsterdam, and Bangalore, where we house a lot of digital and data science AI capability across the world. But in Amsterdam, actually, there's the majority of the emerging tech teams. I mean, we have a great Amsterdam technology center just on the north side of the, in Amsterdam, you take a little ferry there, which is just a fantastic route to work. We actually have, you know, everything when you think about 3D printing, AR, VR, robotics, all based out of this technology center, which creates such a dynamic environment to work on projects together, to solve problems, invite startups to the center to work together and collaborate on projects. By nature, also as our team operates globally, so do our solutions. So whatever we build 
either based out of Amsterdam or, for an example, another use case, we were building a solution out of Qatar. We always build those with the aim to be able to replicate and scale those after, let's say, a pilot phase and to be able to deploy those across different geographic locations and business lines. One example of this is a digital passports for equipment solution, which we have been working on with a number of partners in our supply chain ecosystem, where we trace the origin of equipment as well as all the certification and the data related to that during manufacturing, inspection, and delivery to site, actually the whole life cycle of a piece of equipment. And we have piloted that out in Qatar with our four partners, and we're currently making plans to scale that up as a global solution. The development of this tool has all been done based out of Amsterdam, co-located in our Amsterdam office. And of course, now having the solution ready to be replicated in the course of this year, uh, we will be hopefully deploying this on multiple sites, which also would include sites in the Netherlands for our refineries or for our offshore locations, etc. This is all can be applied across our different business lines. The New Fork, we're based in Amsterdam at Science Park within the universities. And uh, what we do is we develop open public blockchain for agri-food. So our typical clients are uh, consortia or a number of supply chain parties. It's not one company, but a few companies within a supply chain. And we onboard then on uh, an open public blockchain. The reason why we embrace open public blockchain is that agri-food, by definition, is a very complex supply chain, which is very long and which has a lot of small decentralized uh, number of players. And that is why uh, we fully embrace and are strong believers that open public blockchain is um, the technology that, that can really deal with that complexity. So the business reason is really that it's really that decentralized governance models in the end are more efficient or not in the end, they are more efficient. So for companies like, for example, uh, Aldo has his number 10 retailer in the world for them to organize a full supply chain that goes, for example, all the way to Vietnam or all the way to, to Brazil. It's impossible to organize that. It becomes too expensive. So therefore, you do need to decentralize and have parties being enabled to participate and join for on their own accounts. The, the epidemic uh, or the pandemic has really accelerated the demand or quest for transparency. Uh, and again, the big challenge is transparency in retail. And we, we, we strongly see transparency within the supply chain. So not necessarily towards consumers, that is often talked about, right? But we see the strongest need is really for transparency within the supply chains so that brands and retailers know what they're actually buying, or at least they know better what they're buying than they do today. Supply chains need to work together. So the solution that we're, we're implementing is free for farmers. And that has to be free for farmers because the indeed the, the, the additional costs are, are really taken up at farm level and it shouldn't be taken up at farm level because that's where they should have more capacity to invest in soil management. Blockchain has a real need to get During recording, nearly all of my guests cited the role of Odyssey, at one time the world's largest blockchain hackathon, in the advancement of blockchain in the Netherlands. We hear from its founder, Rutger van Seydam, on the origins of Odyssey, 
and how COVID and the inability to host the hackathon in person led to a radical pivot to their model for bringing the decentralized global blockchain community together. Well, it started with buying a lot of Chinese food with Bitcoin. I think I've spent over 10 Bitcoin on sushi and burgers and pizzas in, the, in those early years. So we had people like Tour de Meester and Trace Mayer on stage in 2014, together with the Dutch Central Bank, former Minister of Finance, Jan Kees those conferences were fun. The first three years, two times I did the national Bitcoin conference and one time the blockchain conference. Also, as I was doing experiments myself with developing software on top of Bitcoin, crazy experiments like building a Bitcoin wallet for Google Glass, right? You nod your head twice and then you, you pay through your Coinbase or blockchain.com wallet. Talking doesn't really change a lot. And I wanted to see change happen because I, I think cryptocurrencies and well, especially public blockchains are fundamental for change we need in our society. And let's say this, this new kind of operating system. So I said, okay, we have to start building stuff. We have to bring together the big players in the market, but also the new players in the market. So really create this new kind of level playing field for everyone where the challenges come from government and corporates and NGOs and universities, proper amount of prize money, right? Our last hackathon had 200,000 euros of cash prize money. Then we started the hackathon. It was in 2016 and the first one was 2017. A couple of IBM teams were also winners in that hackathon. It was really, really cool. Super cool self-sovereign identity concept. That emerged into the largest blockchain hackathon, but actually what, what happened is that emerged into a incubator for multi-stakeholder collaboration and solutions. So what we went for is not the technology push, but the human need. There are complex problems out there where corporates, governments, and NGOs are involved, and they are experiencing the symptoms, the effects of the root causes of those complex problems. So having this ecosystem where you have all the different kinds of stakeholders coming together, doing all kinds of challenges and that want to learn with and from each other, that was really cool to have that emerge from the process. And then each year there was this accumulation of momentum where basically you have defined the challenges, you've launched them, you've gathered those stakeholders, you've curated all these amazing teams that are going to build solutions for these challenges with all those stakeholders. And you want to do that together in one big epic event. And that's what we use the hackathon for, to get everyone together and to create this momentum of co-creation. So the last hackathon we did was in 2019, with over 1,500 people from 50 countries or so, and it worked. That was the cool part. Out of it came uh, all kinds of cool projects and partnerships, and we had a, a very cool team, uh, Space for Good, creating a, an infrastructure for satellite data that basically creates agricultural forestry recipes to regenerate rainforests on Borneo. I think it's in production now. And we were planning the next hackathon in April 2020. But then, of course, we hit COVID and we did a radical pivot. You have to look then at three types of online systems. Well, hackathon systems are mostly idea selection systems. 
most of these online hackathons use Slack or Discord. Then you have event platforms. They don't cater for intense multi-stakeholder collaboration. And then you have collaboration software. Well, 99.9% .9 of that software is catered for what happens within organizations and not what happens between them, let alone host an epic event in which you simultaneously want to have over a thousand people collaborating, right? So I knew from the beginning that I would only do it if it could be super epic and it should provide better results. We combined a gaming engine with a completely new architecture for a web-based collaboration space. I announced this in June, June 18th, 2020. I had zero, <laughs> I had no user stories on paper. I had no developers. And on November 13th, we went into production <laughs> with this system. And at its peak, we had 1,600 people from 60 countries simultaneously logged in, flying around in our software called Momentum, high-fiving each other, having meetings, and working together on 21 challenges in more than 100 project teams. That has emerged as the future of Odyssey because what we did is find our essence, being a place for intrinsically motivated people to meet each other, to collaborate, and achieve breakthrough results. What we have with Odyssey is, let's say, the next level of what the Polar model is, but then for creation, not just consensus building. Blockchain gaat de wereld niet redden. One particularly unique feature of the Dutch landscape is the formation and success of the Dutch Blockchain Coalition, led by Marloes Pomp. That's right, yet another famous pomp in the blockchain community. Its mission is to provide a conduit for bringing together industry, government and academia to drive forward new initiatives or establish consortia that might not have come together by themselves. It was of course helpful that the Dutch government was already actively involved in their own pilot program. But at the start of the Dutch Blockchain Coalition, it was an initiative of the Dutch government, but it's more a membership model with where all government agencies are part of this coalition, but also the knowledge institutes, hubs in the region, startup scale-ups. It's a combined agenda, and it's not that the government decides uh, we are going to run these use cases. It's really a, a collaboration of all these organizations, and that's quite unique. Sometimes you see that a government has a strategy paper or a certain vision, and that the, the market is also has their own ecosystem. But really this public-private agenda and approach and investments, it's also a, a common investment, is uh, really unique and makes that the government is also involved in all the use cases we run. And that's also unique, I think. And also the investments made in these use cases are coming from both public and private organizations. Yeah, and, uh, and something else, because we are such a small country, the blockchain world is also relatively small. So within the Dutch Blockchain Coalition, yeah, we, we know all the players in the, in the Netherlands. So that's also helpful. And Dutch people in general are really internationally oriented. So that's also why I think we relatively quickly have set up partnerships with other blockchain communities. For example, we have a collaboration now for three years with the blockchain community and the government in Singapore. We have a lot of collaborations within the EU. So that's also, I think, unique of the Dutch Blockchain Coalition that we partnered so quickly with other communities worldwide. And so we also have a lot of use cases where we work together with other communities. 
a nice project is between the port of Rotterdam and the port of Singapore. And they work on the electronic bill of lading. The bill of lading is a proof of ownership for the goods in a container. It's now a paper document and together they have built a decentralized solution on top of which they have built an electronic bill of lading. In both countries, the ministers from the Ministry of Infrastructure is involved, the custom authorities are involved, the ports are involved, and some blockchain startups are involved to build this. This will save the logistic sector a lot of money if they can make this bill uh, digital. In the Netherlands, we have to change the law. So at this moment, we are working together with the Ministry of Justice and Ministry of Infrastructure to change the Dutch law. Yeah, because in the law, it now says it should be a paper document. So that's, that's a problem. To make this happen, you really need the involvement of a lot of parties like the government, like the ports, like the blockchain community. And I think it's a great example of how they... Yeah, have made this collaboration happen and they, they have tested a lot and they will yeah, extend with other ports as well. Another example is career wallets. In a lot of countries, I've seen uh, applications for diplomas and also the European Commission is working on European blockchain infrastructure. And one of the use cases they want to run on this infrastructure is a wallet for diplomas. And what we try to do in the Netherlands is to extend that use case and we have involved a lot of corporates, but also the government itself to make it possible to collect all different kinds of documents or proofs that you need in your career. So, for example, a, a proof that you have a driver license or a proof that you uh, have specific certificates which are needed, for example, in the financial sector. And that's also an example where the Dutch Blockchain Coalition tries to bring in all the organizations that are needed to make this happen. So we have a lot of smaller pilot projects to see how does this concept work in practice, but we also help with what should be the standardization uh, requirements. How can we make these wallets interoperable? And those kinds of issues. Blockchain gaat de wereld niet redden. As with all countries, government can be a key contributor to the success or failure of emerging technology. In the case of the Netherlands, it's mostly the former, but with a few notable exceptions. Thibaut Schreppel from Utrecht University, Marloes, Simon and Rudolf van A, the chairman of Blockchain Netherlands, talks us through the role of government in the evolution of blockchain and Arna, Marloes and Thibaut give us their views on the importance of the European Union as a ready-made multi-nation coalition and standards body. If you read what's coming out of the Dutch Minister of Finance, you will see quite a few statements saying that they want the Netherlands to become a pioneer in the field of blockchain. And if you compare that with other governments in Europe, uh, you will see something totally different. That for me is something which is tr truly unique here. The central bank back in 2015 uh, has been experimenting with uh, the use of Bitcoin software in a financial markets. So this was way ahead of the curve. You do see that willingness to support the community. And again, for me, this is something, at least if I compare with a few other countries that I know a little bit about, this is something which is truly unique. Try to understand the negative sides of blockchain, and there are many that we could be discussing, but also trying to understand that there are some positive sides and that if you are to regulate the negative ones, you want to do it in a way that will actually preserve what's good about blockchain. And that willingness, I think, is very much uh, present in the country and unfortunately not in many other countries. In the Netherlands, the Dutch government have selected several 
key technologies. And blockchain is one of them, but also artificial intelligence. And their strategy was to build strong communities around these key technologies. So they have yeah, launched a coalition for each of these technologies. And the goal of the coalition is to build a strong ecosystem with all the organizations. So that's a general strategy of the Dutch government. And besides that, the Dutch government is, I think, quite eager to start experiments, uh, learn by doing. And they do a similar strategy they have for artificial intelligence. So there are also a lot of artificial intelligence pilot projects within the government. And that helps them. The goal is not to implement all these pilot projects, but it's just a way of learning and have a better interaction with, the, for example, the industry. And by you know, starting pilot projects together with, for example, a blockchain startup, they also learn to speak each other's language. They also learn what are the problems that have to be solved. So I think it's a, a really a smart strategy to work in such a way. Part of this public-private collaboration, there are no projects or with corporate organizations or only projects with the government. So it's always combined uh, use case. For example, we have recently started two new use cases. One is around mobility as a service. It was an initiative of the Ministry of Infrastructure, but they asked the Dutch Blockchain Coalition, can you coordinate this and bring in all the organizations that are needed? Something similar happened around decentralized energy solutions. So it started with the Ministry of Economic Affairs. Then the Dutch Blockchain Coalition coordinated this new use case. We brought in the most important energy players. We brought in the blockchain startup. So it's never a use case only from the government or only from a knowledge institute or only from a corporate. It's always a combined approach. For a long time, I would say the Dutch government as a very stimulating factor. And, and also right now, you can say that the Dutch government is very positive towards innovation in the areas of blockchain and uh, tokenization. I should, however, also mention that, that our financial supervisor, the Nederlandse Bank, is lately, I would say the last five years, messing things a bit up because they're too scared and too cautious. And that creates serious barriers for anyone in the crypto and the Bitcoin asset uh, domain. Since 2014, our central bank is sort of scaring everyone out of Bitcoin as they find it a new innovation, which is scary, uh, high risk. And there's a clear desire to warn everyone on the risks. And that takes precedence over a fact-based policy approach where you can establish on the basis of facts where the risks truly are. And that's, that's a pity, but that's the current situation. I do hope that by reverting to a fact-based policy making, both our regulators and our supervisors will see that there's a lot of innovation to be facilitated. And uh, I hope certainly that in Europe with the markets in uh, crypto assets regulation, we will not cloak up our innovation on blockchain with too heavy a legal structure and supervisory structure, because that's sort of the risk. We need to get this uh, markets in crypto assets framework uh, right. And currently the analytical basis for that framework is too shaky. It's too unclear in its definitions, which could mean that it could suffocate uh, the future development of blockchain initiatives and uh, tokenization. So that's my concern at present. If we look now at what's going on with crypto regulations, etc., actually Bitonic sued the Dutch National Bank, which is called DMB. This means that there's a lack of clearance and a lack of, let's say, understanding within authorities and financial institutions led by, by the government to really grasp the concept and think in a supportive way rather than what's happening now, that the government doesn't really support it yet. So there are instruments in place, 
but when it actually uh, needs to happen, it's quite tough still. So therefore, today is a big day as uh, the judge will uh, rule her decision on what's, um, what's next for crypto companies in the Netherlands. So what happened basically to go a step back is that when the regulatory framework came in place and the Dutch National Bank required some sort of license or registration, it was called, the understanding of what it meant didn't really reflect to what it should have been. This led to that over half of the crypto-related companies quit their activities, they either joined forces or they actually stopped. or like with Deribit, it's a company that actually moved away from, from the Netherlands. And this is not something that uh, the industry is looking for, uh, of course, and it's not beneficial for the Netherlands as a country. So what's happening now is that more and more awareness is within the governmental organizations, and they try to support better and make sure that, that companies can actually fully operate and have a legal base. For example, Germany is a country that, that we look at. They have all kinds of regulatory frameworks yet in place, not only for crypto and digital assets, but in a broader sense. We could learn a lot actually from, from what's going on in, in Germany. And we have close relationships with them, with, with Birchain, for example. This is, I think, one of the, the bases you need to actually grow the industry. We've seen a lot of initiatives already from the European Union. There's the European Blockchain Services Infrastructure, EPSI. You can see that those things, they really have a lot of potential in, in bringing parties together and, and accelerating the collaboration. It's always challenging, though. Where I, where I see the, the main role of the, of the European Union is to provide guidelines and standardization on specific use cases. Um, they can help the market uh, make sure that if we build something like a health pass, that there's interoperability between the countries. It's those kind of things where the countries need each other, that where I think the European Union can really be a good facilitator for creating those guidelines together. There are several notes running. There's also notes in the Netherlands at the University of Delft. Uh, the Ministry of Interior Affairs in the Netherlands is building a wallet on top of this European blockchain infrastructure. It will be ready in the summer and then we can start testing and experimenting with the wallet on the European blockchain infrastructure. And for some use cases, this will be a really helpful infrastructure. We do think that there's also a national, a similar national infrastructure needed. So that's why we also built a decentralized national infrastructure. And these two infrastructures, they can form the basic uh, roadway for a lot of solutions. And it's helpful that there are initiatives both at the national and European level. And for example, like I mentioned, the career wallet. Of course, it's great that the diplomas can be used at an, a European level. And of course, we hope that the other credentials that we now collect will also be available at the European level or even at an international level. So I think it's helpful to have these initiatives both at the national and European level. The way the Dutch academic system is based, and probably some people will think that I'm putting that in a way which is not nuanced enough, but my experience of the Dutch academic life is that 
pretty much all that matters at the end of the day, if you want to become a full professor one day, is to get grants. And there are a few Dutch grants. The Vini Vidi Vici is a very famous program run by the Dutch government. It's an institution called the NWO. But should you also be able to obtain a grant coming from the European Commission, that's pretty much the best thing that can happen in your academic career in the Netherlands. So for that reason, Dutch academics are applying to those grants on a yearly basis, and pretty much everyone is doing it. The law of the numbers, quite a few of them actually succeed and get fundings for their research projects. So in that regard, yes, the relationship between the European community and the Netherlands is very strong. But when it comes to the, you know, the more practical side and the adoption of blockchain, in my view, the best thing that the European Commission could be doing is to provide some legal certainty when it comes to blockchain. And they are moving in, in this direction. So this is great news. But I'm not convinced that it would be a good idea for the European Commission to finance you know, blockchain projects. I'm not even sure how they will do that and which startup they would choose over the others. So therefore, I'm a bit more skeptic this time <laughs> on that role. Blockchain gaat de wereld niet veranderen. Fostering and crucially retaining blockchain talent is also a hot topic. We hear from Thibaut and Rudolf on the role of academia in the Netherlands, from Olivia, Sabine and Bob on the current talent landscape, and finally from the brilliant Anna Klapwijk from Deloitte on the subject of diversity in blockchain. She shares with us some positive examples of what's going well, albeit still in a relatively concentrated community. Well, a few years back when the first blockchain hype was taking place, this was actually the starting point for a lot of PhD researchers to start doing research on several topics like governance, provenance, etc. Now, a few years later, we're coming at the stage where publications are being made and that catalyzes the, uh, the interest within universities to do more research on several blockchain-related topics. If we split education in, let's say, public universities, etc., and more private commercial, we see that over the last few years, not a lot of commercial education companies are, well, they're not there anymore. The importance of the public institutions, uh, technical un universities like TU Delft, TU Eindhoven, those are the ones that are delivering talent of the future and giving us insights of what needs to be done to yeah, make blockchain work even better. My objective when I teach blockchain is first to provide my students with what I call the blockchain toolbox, which is not to say that they will be able to create their own blockchain at the end of the course. That isn't true. And I'm a lawyer. My background is law. And I try my best to understand the technique behind blockchain. But I do not want my, my student necessarily to be able to create their own blockchain. But I think it's very important for them to do have the toolbox, which will basically allow them the technical expertise to then being able to understand what are the legal issues and what's also possible when it comes to regulating blockchain, if you should regulate it. And so hopefully they will become informed leaders in the years ahead. On a more personal level, I've sort of a challenge with myself, which is to try to convince a few of them to write their master thesis on the subject and uh, hopefully to be able to convince a few of them to go in the industry and work there and see if they can improve the regulatory sides for the most part. 
So, so far, so good. <laughs> I've managed to do that. But yeah, this is very personal. But as for the entire Dutch uh, academic community, it is being very active. I would say it's quite concentrated in a few places. But my impression is that at the university level, at the very top of the university, there is no real desire to push blockchain. And AI is way more on the table than, than blockchain is. I do have the impression, and I've seen that quite a few times, people telling me, ooh, blockchain is too complex and I can't understand blockchain. To which I say, well, if you give me five or 10 minutes, I could explain the very basics of blockchain. Again, you're not going to be a blockchain expert, whatever it means, but at least you will, you will understand the potential and the, the issues that we will encounter in the years ahead of us. But somehow people, at least in the academic community and the people I've met are very humble when it comes to blockchain. And they are not when it comes to AI because they've probably used a product using AI already. And they think they understand AI, but of course, when you discuss, you know, unsupervised machine algorithm, the level of technical expertise is very low, especially in the legal field, but somehow they are less humble when it comes to AI. So I think that's why they feel comfortable writing papers about AI, where you find lots of mistakes, factual mistakes, but at least they are not doing it when it comes to blockchain. So, so it's really rare for me to read an academic paper in the field of blockchain or discussing the technology where I would think this is technically wrong. I think it's fair to say that on the more technical side, TU Delft is the leader. They've been very active in the field for over 10 years already. They do have, and I forgot the name of the, of the one of the blockchain lab that they have there, uh, but it's quite a big one. And the, the level of expertise is incredibly high. On the more social science or economic side, I've seen quite a few good papers coming from Groningen in the north of the country. I've seen also a few coming from Nijmegen in uh, the middle of the country. I've created a group entitled Blockchain for Societies within Utrecht Universities. I think also Tilburg has been doing quite a few. They, they have some, some great academics. They obtained also a few grants coming from the European Commission on the subject. So I would definitely put Tilburg also in the leading institutions. Maastricht University, I think, is leading the pack when it comes to AI, but not really blockchain somehow. And uh, we also seen a few other groups, such as the Dutch Blockchain uh, Coalition, um, trying to create a sort of partnerships between universities, the government. If I wanted to read everything that is being published in the Dutch academic community discussing blockchain, that's, that will be a full-time job. That's all I could do, which is a challenge because I do want to do it. <laughs> but again, it's, it's quite complex because the level of, of expertise is really high and you have quite a few fantastic publications coming out on a weekly basis. This is one of our biggest problems, finding talent who can build these kind of solutions. And that doesn't necessarily have to do with the exact programming skills, although uh, IT guys and girls are scarce, but I think it goes for, for any uh, European country at, uh, at the moment. Here I am a bit hesitant to say that we are doing a great job in the Netherlands. I think we have a lot of smart people who can think out of the job, but in order to really start building it themselves as well, that is harder. And uh, we see that in other countries, for example, we see more higher educated programmers than in the Netherlands. If you have a university degree in the Netherlands, you 
most of the times those university graduated people don't become a software engineer or a coder or whatever. They become a consultant, etc. And this is, I think, a missed opportunity where we should grasp it a little bit more because the, the level of education in the Netherlands is really good, but we should make it more hands-on. And this is actually where we see it a bit more happening abroad that people who come from university also start to code. And that's what I would like to see more that this talent is being used actually. It's a hard landscape to really find talent. I believe really in two things, the balance of and looking externally, partnering with the right companies, leveraging the collaboration with these companies to make sure you bring in that talent as well, you actually collaborate. That I think that partnership is very important, but we've also find or what I find during hiring, for me, it's not just about the proven experience that people have had on the, on the many projects that they've done, uh, where I always see the great difference that comes out in any hiring process or in the team that I have at the moment is their intrinsic motivation to make a difference with this technology. And I think that shines through in a lot of ways. They don't need to have you know, years of experience in blockchain, but being very interested in the technology and having that motivation to go at all lengths to learn about it and to grasp it and to work on it. That to me is almost the best form of motivation. And that's why we also really bring in talent from within Shell, but also externally to develop them into real blockchain experts over the years. You need good talent to be able to be present as a knowledge country. There's a quite strong startup community as well, which is also using this technology, which is great. But sometimes with blockchain, I also think you have to have a little bit of a different type of thinking. And because we're always have been in a very safe community and blockchain is completely focusing on decentralization, they sometimes see there's a little bit of conflict. And I see that people from the Eastern European countries sometimes have a, that perspective of thinking, which is actually a, a gain in my perspective. But that's something we can learn. And by collaboration, you actually get that right mindset as well. But from a perspective of understanding the technology and what you can do with it, we have great uh, expertise and talent running around. Next to that, we're also quite innovative country, although I think we slowly are decreasing, unfortunately, a little bit because the amount of money going to research is decreasing. If we can change that and acknowledge that, if we want to be a strong player in innovation and as a knowledge country, we should start keeping on uh, investing more in new projects, education in itself, and supporting fintechs and startups. So I'm quite involved with female diversity and cultural diversity, both within Deloitte and outside Deloitte. There's still a long way to go. I think, yes, there are some female leaders, but it doesn't compare to the amount of males there still. There's a lot of support for more equality, not just on a female diversity perspective, but also on a cultural perspective. So you saw with the last elections that there were a lot of articles written also about, you know, people coming in parliament, what is the diversity rate that is there? So it's definitely sort of a societal topic that's addressed in various ways. Role models is always one. For me personally, if I look to females within the organization that have really high positions and have children and are technical and they do it regardless the the sort of stereotypes that are there, I think that's really important to see that it's possible. I think something that is there but could be stronger is these community groups and finding each other and supporting each other. And I think that's relevant, not just in the blockchain, but more in the in the whole technical space, because, of course, there's more areas where uh, females are still underrepresented, even though the talent might be there. 
There's lots of female groups. I'm leading the Amsterdam team for female ventures myself, and that's more general, just female empowerment. But for example, in the city of Amsterdam, there is something called RISE that is focused specifically on tech talent for females. I think it's quite limited on the blockchain part. There's not a lot in terms of a formal network of getting together. And I think that that would be helpful to find each other, but it also has to be compelling enough. And I think there you overlap a bit with all the organizations that are already there. So I think it merges a little bit in the women in tech space. And then the question is more like, how do you find the specific blockchain talent? And I think it's partly it's the females that we already know, but there's, of course, emerging talent that we don't know yet. And how do you find those? It goes sort of two ways. How do you make sure that the teams are filled with people that might not feel that secure yet or feel that they might not be a right environment for them and have them notice that it is a right environment for them and that they are welcome and that they do bring a lot of value? You really need to look at it also maybe from, from a little bit of a broader context within the company or within whether it's a startup where you work or corporate, think about the environment that you create for the people who work there. Blockchain gaat de wereld niet redden. Mensen gaan dat doen. And to round off the show, we're going to discuss what more is needed to further scale the use of blockchain in the Netherlands and further afield. As you've heard already, most of the ingredients are there today. But Rutger, Malus, Olivier and Marika tell us their wish lists for how to make things even better. On the one hand, you see a clear notion that our current systems are not sustainable, whether it's financial systems, energy systems, education systems, healthcare systems, systems of government. We know, not scientifically per se, but we know by heart that those current systems all rooted in the past century are completely unsustainable. I think we see that across the Western world, but also you see a couple of countries that have gained this kind of awareness or are clearly gaining that awareness by creating clarity and creating a crypto-friendly environment where they can work with the best projects, where you basically curate the quality. This has always been my proposal also for the Netherlands, what I did in the Dutch parliament, to create a curated crypto-friendly environment where you can experiment in a prudent way. We need more time. (laughs) When blockchain hype started, a lot of people were asking when will this become mainstream? And I think they were too eager. And it's especially those public-private use cases. It's not easy to implement these kinds of things because so many organizations are involved and needed. It will request a lot of time and we should be more realistic in this. On the other hand, I think the industry is much more mature than most people think, especially the crypto community. There we have to bring the community and the policymakers even more together. Of course, they know each other a bit, but a lot of more work has to be done there. Also to get the right regulations to create trust. Also community building in the coming years is essential so that we understand each other, that we are doing the right things. There will be a lot of discussion about standardization and governance. And for example, what are the requirements of wallets and verified credentials to use, for example, data from the government? There's still a lot of work, but I think it's similar as what we did in the past years. We just need more time to get it finished. The willingness to invest 
either by investors or by companies to really take up the step from proof concept to let's do it live. And the hard part there is, and that is very closely tied to the decentralized nature of the technology, obviously, the traditional, here we have an assignment and start doing it and I'll pay for it and I'll be the owner. Due to the decentralized nature of the technology and that you actually are creating solutions across value chains, in this way, you don't have the traditional role of ownership anymore. And thus, the funding question and who owns the system, etc., is a very interesting and hard one as well. And that is something that we run into, into multiple projects, because as all parts of the value chain benefit from implementing such a solution, then all parts should contribute in developing such a solution. And that is something that people still find uh, hard to grasp on, that there's no one owner, that you become co-owner of a solution, et cetera. Now we have the opportunity to, to improve value chains, but value chains don't own a common budget. I think there are still too many misconceptions out there about the technology in itself. So the educational part is really important. And I do have to say, hypes don't help out on the educational part, because then um, with every single hype, for me, it's a feeling that in the end, when we start to explain how cool the technology is, we are being thrown back a half year to a year again because they say, yeah, but it's all speculative, etc. And people want to make a quick buck out of it. And with regards to the educational part, people really have to understand that blockchain and, for example, GDPR shouldn't be a problem if you design your solution right. For some reason, uh, still with a lot of decision makers, it's in their head that uh, blockchain and GDPR doesn't go together, which is not true. If you design it well, it can perfectly then go together. Technology can scale. That is why technology is so beautiful. But we should have bigger ambitions. I think a lot of the projects are small scale, which for experimental reasons is good, it's manageable, etc. But how cool would it be, uh, like, for example, uh, as they're doing in Estonia, right, where you would say that as a country, we're going to do, we'll put all our farmers on, uh, uh, we give them a unique identity and we're going to put them on a, a blockchain network. Something like that to have, you know, bolder ambitions. I think that's really what, what's needed in Europe at large, right? Not only the Netherlands. And that, that is really why I, I, I personally, I'm very intrigued and enthused and inspired by technology because it I think the more we take out the human factor the, the more reliable systems become and I think that's a good thing you know in code we do trust thanks again for listening to the blockchain won't save the world podcast as always opinions in this episode are mine and those of my guests alone if you want to find out more please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn check out some of the other episodes on the blockchain won't save the world podcast and check out the YouTube channel, also called Blockchain Won't Save the World. Stay safe out there. Yeah, is that enough for your snippets? That made my day. <laughs> yeah.